I love the 4th of July. I love it. It's got that wonderful, magical combination of summer, which means watermelon and barbecue and ice cream uh, and vacation, uh, and also fireworks. Like, that just makes a pretty good event. I've always loved the 4th of July. I've always loved Independence Day. But it still seems a little strange to me that in the church we celebrate Independence Day as a religious holiday. It's a major feast, a capital letter feast in the life of the church. That's a little strange. It's not strange if you think about the fact that the people who founded this country were also largely the same people who founded our church. And the structure of our church with a bicameral legislature is a lot like the bicameral legislature of the government. So it, it, it does make sense in that way. But as the years have gone on, that, that celebration, the fact that Independence Day is a religious feast, has become a little controversial. Partly it's controversial because we've reached, I think, an era where religion and politics don't merge as well as perhaps they did in the 17th or the 18th century, excuse me, and that makes sense. Um, but another reason that it's a little controversial is that the Episcopal Church, our church, is now present and active in 17 different countries. The same church with the same prayer book and the same presiding bishop is in places like Honduras and Taiwan and Micronesia, even throughout Europe, the Navajo land. They might celebrate the same religious holidays that we do, but what does the 4th of July mean to an Episcopalian in Haiti? except for maybe a chance to shoot fireworks with no other connection. But the real controversy that has caught my attention in the last several years is a controversy having to do with a collect in the prayer book, the one that I read a little while ago, the collect appointed for Independence Day. Let me read those words to us again and listen to them. Lord God Almighty, in whose name the founders of this country won liberty for themselves and for us and lit the torch of freedom for nations then unborn. Who's the us? Who are the we? The vice president of the House of Deputies, a pretty important person in the Episcopal Church, is a man named Byron Rushing. He's also a legislator in the State House in Massachusetts. And every year about this time, he sends an email to all the people who are a part of the General Convention reminding them that when we pray this collect on Independence Day, the us that our founding fathers won liberty for isn't always everybody in church. He asks us to look around and ask, how many of the people in our congregations didn't get liberty when those documents were signed? He makes the point that either the authors of the collect forgot about slavery, or they intended that us not to include the people who were nothing like free when this country was founded. My ancestors came to this country by choice. They might have been fleeing a potato famine or religious persecution, but nobody put them in chains and forced them onto a ship at gunpoint. They came to this country expecting a better life. Those who came in slave ships didn't come by choice. Not only did they not come seeking a better life, they came because life as they knew it had been taken from them. And for generations, generations 
still unfolding today, the legacy of that lack of freedom is real. And I'm reminded as we celebrate the 4th of July, as we pray this collect, I'm reminded that although our stories, the stories of how we got here are remarkably different, they're not separate. Because the freedom that I enjoy, the prosperity that I enjoy, the culture and society that I enjoy were built upon the backs of those who were forced into ships and brought here as slaves. And for us to pretend that freedom was given to all of the people, even in our congregation, not to mention the whole Episcopal Church, not to mention this country, to pretend that seems to miss the point in a really big way. Another lesson for me, as I ponder that, is wrapped up in the story of the creation of the nation of Israel. And the first lesson we heard from Deuteronomy comes from that moment. You might remember that part of the Bible where Moses comes down the mountain with the two tablets of stone and finds that the people had given up on Moses and had instead made a golden calf and were worshiping the golden calf. And Moses got a little frustrated with them and so he threw the tablets down and broke them and punished them in a pretty exciting way, but that's for another sermon. But God called him back up on the mountain and said, two more tablets, let's try this again. And this time when Moses comes down, Moses, in the sense of kind of hope but exasperation at the same time, he gathers all the people together and gives them this summary and says, look, let's, let's talk about who we are and who God is. And the lesson we have from Deuteronomy is a part of that speech. This is what Moses says to them. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. And who is he? He is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, loves the strangers, providing for them food and clothing. And when it's time for you to build your nation, Moses says to them, you too shall love the stranger, for you were strangers in Egypt. The people who founded the nation, the, 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 the culture that is Israel, had experienced slavery in Egypt. And when they were slaves, they learned that God prefers those who are oppressed. God loves those who are enslaved. God holds in God's heart those who are subject to the whims and chains of others. And so when they built their culture and their nation, they decided that part of what it meant to belong to God is to belong to the one who loves the stranger, and thus they too would love the stranger. Well, the people who signed the documents that formed our country were on the other side of slavery. Should it surprise us then that instead of considering the need to care for those who were among them as stranger, that instead they dehumanized them by counting them as three-fifths of a person? 60% human, which is to say 40% what? That's the legacy of our country. It doesn't have to be that way. We can't change the past. We wouldn't want to rewrite write history. We need to learn from it. But the story doesn't have to stop there. In the news, we can't help but notice that people who are fleeing oppression and poverty and violence are coming to this country seeking the same freedoms that we enjoy and they are drowning in the river on the way here and they are being locked in cages. 
which is a testament that our country still believes that white skin is more precious than brown skin and that freedom is not something to be distributed universally. That can't be our legacy going forward. That can't be who we are if we belong to God. Jesus, at the end of this lesson, says to his disciples, be perfect, be complete, be finished, just as your heavenly Father is perfect, complete, and finished. This Independence Day, as we eat our watermelon and enjoy our ice cream and our barbecue and maybe even set off some fireworks, my invitation is for us to celebrate the hope that our founders had and at the same time to decide that it wasn't complete and that it's our job, our calling, not only as citizens of this country, but as followers of Jesus and citizens of God's kingdom, it is our calling and our duty to finish it, to make it perfect.